0: What we're going to do today is we're going to continue in our series, and we've been doing this whole summer from the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, we've been talking about what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit, and we've talked about how that's really uh, something that many people want, every, probably every human who's ever existed has wanted the things that are talked about as the fruit of the Spirit. Who doesn't want to be loved? You know, to know what it is, to be fully accepted by God, to be fully known, He knows everything about His thoughts before we even have them, and He still loves us wholly, completely, to experience joy that surpasses all circumstances and everything that could happen in life, to experience peace, peace with God, peace with others, peace with ourselves, that surpasses all understanding, to have supernatural levels of this, because as believers in Jesus Christ, we're filled with the Spirit of God. We have God living inside of us, so to have supernatural love and supernatural joy and supernatural peace and, and kindness and faithfulness we talk about today, perhaps the rarest of all of the characteristics, because it's so rare that we see it. Today we talk about supernatural faithfulness. If you have your Bible, it's going to be the book of Galatians. I'll start reading again in verse 16 like I have as we've been going through this whole series. And so if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. We'll start reading in verse 16. And as you turn there, I'll just let those of you who haven't been with us, one of the interesting things that we've learned as we've been going through this book in Galatians is that the people from Galatia from a couple thousand years ago, we have a lot in common with them. And that's incredibly interesting because many of them, like many of you, have made the most important decision of their life. They've placed their faith in Jesus Christ The Bible teaches that we all sin and we fall short of God's perfect standard, his glory, and the wages of sin is death, that we're separated from him. And so what we have to do is make that important decision to receive the gift that he offers us. He offers us a gift and it's eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ. And some of you have made that important decision to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Others of you haven't. Today you can make that decision to trust Jesus as your Savior. And I'll tell you how before you leave today, but you receive Jesus Christ into your life to forgive you of your sins. And for those of you who've made that decision... Many of you, like the Galatians, are confused after that point. Because now what do we do? And I remember being a new Christian, now what do I do? I'm supposed to go to church, I guess, read the Bible every once in a while, and what we do is we try to figure out what seems right to us. What seems right to many people is that you'd copy other Christians, people who have been doing it longer. The problem is we never think to ask them. We don't even know that we should ask them. So do you experience supernatural joy in your life, regardless of circumstances? You've got a fulfillment in your life? Do you truly know, I mean really know, god's love do you have peace that surpasses understanding that doesn't make sense in this place and we don't even know that we should ask those questions and many people don't they've got fake fruit and so we copy somebody who's a fake and then we copy another copy and this is how christian culture works and somebody else copies somebody else and have you seen a copy of a copy of a copy they're bad copies after a while right and none of us try to be phonies nobody tries to be a hypocrite i don't think but just by Christian culture, oftentimes that's what happens. And there's another way to live the Christian life, is that you trust Jesus as your Savior, most important decision you'll ever make, but then you've got the rest of the decision covered. Like, you'll decide what job you'll do. You'll decide where you go to college. You'll decide who you marry. You'll decide how to... You've got everything else under control. God, if we need you, we'll call, kind of an emergency call up every once in a while. But we've got this. You can handle the big stuff. We've got all the rest. And neither group of people experiences real fruit, supernatural anything in their lives. And Paul says there's another way. It says it in verse 16. He says in verse 16, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Live by what's supernatural, and you won't live by what's natural. For the sinful nature, what's natural, desires what is contrary to the Spirit. The supernatural and the Spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other, so you don't do what you want. There's a battle that's going on inside of you. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And then he contrasts with two different lists. Here's one. Here's the natural list. The acts of the sinful nature, the natural things that we do, they're obvious. Sexual morality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, the supernatural way of living, is love, supernatural joy, supernatural peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. (laughs) Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the supernatural way of living, the Spirit of God the key to the Christian life, the Holy Spirit, that we're to live by, to be led by, to be guided with, to keep in step with, to be filled with in our lives but so many people don't know hardly anything about because it's scary, because it means you're not in control, because it requires faith, it requires trust, it requires a relationship and a closeness with God where he speaks to you and directs you in those decisions, where to go to college, who to marry, what career to go into what church to attend, what state to live in, all those things. He directs and he guides daily with your finances, with your kids, and all those things, and it's the key to the Christian life. And so many of us, we'd rather have a formula and have it all figured out, and we work the formula, and we do the things, and we've got fake fruit. But here he says, but the fruit of the Spirit, it is supernatural love, supernatural joy, and today's supernatural faithfulness. And what we're going to see today in our message is that supernatural faithfulness requires wholehearted devotion. Supernatural faithfulness requires a wholehearted devotion. And if you've been around church for very long, you should probably know this. Jesus one time asked the question, uh, so what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers, love the Lord your God with half of your heart and half of your soul and half of your mind and half of your strength, right? But we want the whole thing. He wants all of it. My daughter's yelling at me, you're quoting the verse wrong, Dad, you know? You're, you're not getting this. We, we love wholehearted devotion. We admire, even just not even in Christian culture, But just in American culture, we admire devotion, wholehearted devotion. It's why our heroes in our country are are those that will sacrifice even their lives so that we can have our freedom, our soldiers that that battle for us. Uh, Oftentimes we'll see people we admire when someone's willing to lay their life down because they love somebody, donate a kidney or blood transfusion or take a bullet or do something like that. It's like those are heroes in our culture. And even on a lesser degree, our athletes... We love their devotion. Those that have put so many hours in for their skill, for their craft, many of you watched the Olympics recently. And, and I've joked about the Olympics, about badminton. I could have joked about speed walking. I didn't. You know, There's certain events on there that I, get, I watch and I'm confused by. But there's other events. You watch them and are you, is your mind boggled at all by how difficult they are? Like water polo. Do you watch water polo at all? Did anybody see that? My wife and I had that on TV one day, and she tried to convince me they were not treading water. And I said, if they're not treading water, I can do that. Like, I can throw a ball in the pool. I, I got that one. But I would always thought that they were treading water. And so we we're debating back and forth about whether they are. She's saying there's no way they are because it's just too hard. I'm trying to watch their legs. Finally, what I did is I looked up trusty Wikipedia, right? <laughs> Never doubt Wikipedia. And so I looked it up, and it says that they're treading water the whole time. Well, there goes my Olympic dream, right? It, I'm not, I can't do that. I'm not dedicated enough. I, I'm not committed to that. And, and you watch some of those athletes. Did you see the commercial? where they say different things that they've given up, how they've sacrificed basically what we consider normal life for years so they can compete, sometimes for 10 seconds, sometimes for a day-long event. But they'll say things in that, in that commercial that says things like, uh, I haven't ordered dessert in two years. <laughs> we sit there eating chips. I'm like, wow, that's tough. you know? <laughs> uh, there's, uh, There was another guy on there, I think he said that uh, he, hadn't sl- he hadn't skipped a day, he hadn't even skipped a morning in some crazy amount of time, hadn't taken time off. And they say these different things that they've done, this different devotion that they've had, and we admire that. And just as much as we admire their devotion, we despise this loyalty in our culture, don't we? Some of you may have seen the story that took place, and if you haven't, you've probably been watching the news in Colorado, and Aurora, where a guy walked in the movie theater and started shooting people. It was about a month ago. It was July 20th. uh, So about a month ago today. And that day he killed 12 people. 58 people were wounded. Every person in that theater had a story that day. As I was reading through... Just different stories of individuals, people that were victims, people that were uh, able to make it out of there, Uh, trying to get the different stories of people I saw there. I think there were about three different men that were on dates with their girlfriends that died that day. And the reason why they died is because they were shielding their girlfriends with their bodies. And I look at that and I think, that's right. That's what they should do. That's what should happen in that situation. If someone were with my wife or with my little daughters or if I were there, I would hope that's what I would do. I would hope that's what they would do. That's what I would expect to be done. There was one story that I came across, a guy named Jamie Rohr. Some of you may have seen this story. What happened was that he went to the movies with his girlfriend, and they sat up in the balcony. And when the guy came in and he started shooting, he stood up and he yelled, get down. But he had his four-month-old child in his arms, his four-month-old son and her four-year-old daughter. He put his son down on the ground. Now, it depends on who you listen to the story of. He says he was doing it to protect his son. Other people say that he was trying to get out of there, and his son was slowing him down. But regardless of what your take is on the story, he left. He left. He left his four-month-old son in there, he left his girlfriend in there, her four-year-old daughter, and he got in his truck and he drove away. And a 19-year-old kid helped her get out of the theater with her kids that day. And when I hear that, I get bothered by that guy. I'm upset that he would do that. Like if, if, if that girl went to our church or if I were friends with her, she was my sister, I'd be like, you dropped that dude like a bad habit. Like he's out of here. But you know what happened? He showed up at the hospital that night. She got wounded, some shrapnel from a gunshot in her leg, and he proposed to her. He asked her to marry him. She said yes. That bothers some of us because we dislike disloyalty. And if that guy's loyal to anybody, it's to himself, right? But he when his four-month-old son and takes off and leaves her. And he, go back in. I mean, if you realize you're out there, go back in. That's what we'd expect. It's interesting to me that we hate that kind of thing so much, but then you look at our own lives and how disloyal we are. Oh, we're not faithful with our money. We're not faithful with our time. We're not faithful to God. We know that he says we're to love him with our whole hearts, but how many do that? And you know what C.S. Lewis says about us, about humans? He says that our problem is that we're half-hearted creatures, and we're easily pleased. He says we're so foolish that we mess around with ambition. That's like success in your career and all that stuff. We think that's going to please us, and drink, and sex. And when we've got something so much greater waiting for us, he says we're like children that are playing in the slums with mud pies, when there's a vacation, a holiday, he says, because of where he's from, a holiday at the sea that awaits us. But we're so easily pleased with simple things like drink and sex and ambition, and we don't realize we're missing out on God. We're half-hearted creatures. That's not the kind of commitment that's being talked about by the Apostle Paul here in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, when he says that the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. And word faithfulness, it means loyalty, it means devotion, reliability, trustworthiness. It's a supernatural faithfulness because it's the Spirit of God in us That makes that possible that we would be able to love god with all of our heart soul mind and strength and then love other people the way that we would naturally love ourselves we're never commanded to love ourselves it's just assumed that that's natural But we're commanded then love your neighbor as you love yourself the way that you'd naturally love you we're doing some supernatural need that you care about other people that you love other people we expect people to do that but we don't do it and that's why we hate disloyalty so much you know we hate disloyalty we're in good company because god hates it too you read throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, you see him continually being disgusted when we come to him with half-heartedness. And the prophets, he calls our, our sin adultery. Because we go out and we prostitute ourselves before whatever the other thing is that we serve, and we're being unfaithful to him. And the prophet Malachi, he talks to the people there. The people in Malachi, they've experienced revival. People have been in exile, and they're now a generation of people that they've committed to God. They made a decision. They are going to be wholehearted to God. And do you know what happens? life and they start getting preoccupied with paying the bills and their houses and their families and their jobs and eventually their wholehearted commitment you know it becomes half-hearted in malachi chapter one he says you promised me that you're going to give me the best sacrifices but then you give me crippled animals when you have good animals and you give me blind goats are you going to offer that to somebody else and expect them to do you a favor you ask for my grace and then you offer me this junk and you know what he says to them Malachi chapter 2, verse 3. Look at what it says in Malachi chapter 2, verse 3. Put it up on the screen. I will punish your descendants and splatter your faces with the manure from your festival sacrifices. Does that sound like God that we talk about very often? I'm going to rub crap in your face because that's what you're offering me, is what he says to us. In the New Testament, he says it like this. I wish you were hot or cold, but you're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. You make me sick. I want to spew you out of my mouth. He hates, he despises our disloyalty. Which is good because we despise disloyalty too, right? But the problem is that we're so incredibly disloyal. So what's happening? Because you can look at every statistical category and you would think that we're in a situation to have an incredible impact for the kingdom. We live in a time as American Christians, we've got more money than anyone ever in the human history. But... As Americans, we have $750 billion in debt just in our credit cards. That doesn't count mortgages, that doesn't count education, that doesn't count automobile loans, that doesn't count any of that stuff. Do you know why? Because we're committed, we're wholehearted, devoted to us. We should have more time than anybody else in human history. I know everybody's had 24 hours a day, but we've got more time-saving devices than ever. What generation do you think wastes more time than ever? Whether it's video games, entertainment, television, whatever it is, it's us. We're not faithful with the stuff we've been entrusted with. Look at marriages, marriage statistics. They're no better for Christians than they are for non-Christians. About 50% of marriages end in divorce. We're not committed to relationships. We're not committed to our jobs. We'll flip jobs as soon as a better opportunity comes along. We're not committed to anything but us. And so while we despise somebody like Jamie Roars, isn't he really a picture of our culture? He's looking out for him. He does what's best for him. If he's devoted anything, it's to himself. And we say that we hate it, but but I think that we hate it theoretically, but not practically. Theoretically, we hate the disloyalty. Practically, we all live in it. That's what we actually do. And I was thinking about it this week, and I'm going to ask you a question that may even seem offensive to you that I would ask, but I was thinking about our time and our culture. And I wonder, would you even be offended by Judas Iscariot today? If that were to happen today, if Judas were to betray Jesus like he did then, would you even be bothered by that? And, and, and I think the big problem is the stigma that comes with the name Judas. It's not what he did. Because try to imagine this. Imagine you have a friend who takes a job. And his plan in the job is that he's going to be real close to the king. And then he finds out the guy's not a king like he thought he was going to be. So he comes to you and says, I thought I was following a king. This guy, we sleep outside. Like he doesn't have a palace. This guy doesn't have anywhere to lay his head and i thought that i was at least going to be in the top 12 ranking in the kingdom but now he's telling us that they're going to kill him and they're going to hate us i started i took this opportunity because what i wanted was an easier life and now he's telling us he's promising us that in this world we're going to have trouble what counsel would you give him many of us we would counsel him you need to get out of there you want to be with kings you need new friends (laughs) because these guys aren't kings You get out, and you get out as fast as you can. And so what does Judas do? He negotiated the severance package, and he got out. And so would you even be offended today by Judas? And I think many of us, we wouldn't. And I know some of you wouldn't, because you give the same kind of counsel for people in their marriages or in their jobs or when they're getting an opportunity to share the gospel. Things get tough, you get out. Why? Because you need to be happy. And so that's what we do. We tell people that with churches. We tell it with marriages. We tell it with all kinds of stuff. It's terrible counsel. It's not what the scriptures say. It's not what God would say. We never counsel people towards faithfulness, do we? Theoretically, we would like to. But do we? You think about somebody's having a hard time in their marriage. What do you say? You deserve to be happy. Get out. You, you don't, we talk about, just think about Christian culture. We talk about churches as if they're shopping malls and convenience stores. We don't talk about churches like our arms are linked together, we're going to lay our lives down for a mission together, like you see in the scripture. We talk about church like they need to meet our needs. It's not meeting my needs, I'm on to the next one, I need them to suspend spiritual goods to me, so they can serve me, and meet my needs and do my stuff. We're committed to us. We're not devoted to God. So let's just at least look in the mirror today. And as much as in our hearts we hate disloyalty, You look at a guy like Jamie Morris. how much do we see ourselves? Because of our disloyalty. And so what's the problem? Because there's a conflict, right? You want to do one thing, but that's not practically how we live. Verse 18 talks about that. It's because we're being led by something other than the Spirit. Those who live, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, are people who live by the Spirit. People who are guided by the Spirit as people who keep in step with are filled with, Ephesians chapter 5, with the Spirit of God. Not with what seems natural. Not with what makes sense to them. But it's a life of faith, and faith with the Spirit, as the Spirit guides and directs us. And the problem is we're led by so many other things. Oftentimes we're led by ourselves. We just do what seems right to us. James talks about that. It never ends well. He says, each one, in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, each one, when he's tempted... It's by his own evil desire. It's when you're led by yourself. Then you're dragged away and you're enticed. He talks about this cycle of sin. After desire is conceived in you, your desire. It's not Satan tapping you on the shoulder and the angel and you're deciding who to obey. It's you. It's what you want to do. It gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. You're separated from God. The fellowship's broken. It's because we're committed to us. We want to do what's right to us. Sometimes it's us. Sometimes we're led by lies in our lives. The longer I've been a pastor, the more convinced I am that many people live their lives according to lies. And those lies dictate the decisions that they make in their life. It's the same thing that happened with Eve and the garden. She believed there's a way you can experience goodness apart from God. And so that lie dictated her decisions. You know what the very next verse is in James chapter 1? James chapter 1 verse 16 says, Do not be deceived. You've been living your own way, and now you're fertile ground for the enemy. Don't be deceived. And you think about all the lies that are out there that dictate how we live our lives. They never lead us to God. God lies like if you just and you fill in the blank then you would then you'd experience joy then you'd know love then you'd and all the stuff that's promised is the fruit of the spirit is then promised to you but it never delivers if you just had this relationship and I understand it's not a healthy relationship I understand all these things then you would know what it is to be loved if you just and you fill in the blank. If you just escape, reality is tough, and so you need an escape, whether that's an adrenaline escape, or that's an escape through pornography, or video games, or entertainment, or food, or you fill in the blank with whatever. These things, these will satisfy you. This will bring you real joy. But reality is still waiting for you every time it's over. If you just were successful in your career, if you just had enough people around you that told you good things about you, then maybe eventually you'd believe those things. It's all these lies that we believe. And then some lies, are, they're so blatantly obvious. To those of us who, who study the truth, we look at it and people say things like, God, he can forgive sin, but there's this one. And maybe it was an affair, or maybe it was an abortion, or maybe it's something that you categorize as like the big thing. He can't forgive that one. Or, or God loves all these people, but I'm not really lovable. And we start thinking it's about us. Like our sin, he forgives because of us. <laughs> or he loves us, and we're deceived. And we're led away from God. And it leads to unfaithfulness. But the good news is all of his stuff is based on his faithfulness, not ours. Every lie that we believe, there's a contrasting truth. You think that he forgives your sin because you're faithful enough, like you're good enough for you to be blessed, and sometimes you maybe heard that in a church, it's not true. It's based on him and his character. First John chapter one, verse nine, what does it say? If you confess your sin, who's faithful? It's him. He's faithful. It's actually not about your sin. It's about his faithfulness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. He's just because he's poured out his wrath on his son Jesus. He's faithful because he's faithful in his own character, in his essence. That's who he is by his nature. It doesn't have to do with our circumstances. And our temptation, sometimes before we even sin, we think that well, I'm just trapped in this sin. I could never get out. And you know what God says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13? That he will provide a way out. Why? Well, no temptation to seize you except for what is common to man, and God is faithful. It's his faithfulness. Have you seen God's faithfulness through the scripture in your own life? When you're about to make that sin and the phone rings, or, or when you get to the point where you're about to and you're so convicted you know that it's not right. It's God's faithfulness. He's there. It's his presence. It's his spirit working. And you think you're trapped. He's so faithful. There's no such thing as being trapped. He sets the prisoners free. There's no condemnation that's in him. There's promise after promise after promise. If we wait upon him, he'll renew our strength. He'll forgive every sin as far as the east is from the west. Every book in the Bible has a promise in it, hundreds of promises through the scripture. The question is, will we believe them? Because that's where our faithfulness comes from. And the issue is that we won't because we're not wholehearted devoted. We're half-hearted creatures. And I don't think I totally believe C.S. Lewis's quote Because we're not so easily pleased. We're not actually pleased. We just keep trying the same stuff over and over again to try and produce results that God promises us in ways that he tells us it won't work. And it doesn't work. But we're deceived. We're led by lies. We're led by our flesh. We're led by our culture. And it's those that are led by the Spirit that are the ones that actually experience supernatural faithfulness. And then you look at what we ask for for, from Christians in church and sometimes some of you try to lead your neighbors to Jesus, or try to share with a loved one, a relative, or you hear a preaching. And it's almost like we beg people to come into the kingdom, like if you just it would just add Jesus to your life, like we'd be so much happier, and we could be better friends then, and then you get to go to heaven, it'd be amazing. But then you look at what Jesus says, and Jesus tells people, "Come and die." Look at the commitment he asks for. If anyone's going to follow, anyone's going to follow me, he must take up his cross, deny himself, follow me. You want to save your life? You have to lose your life. Your love for me should make your love for those that you naturally love like your mother and father and your kids and your wife should make it look like hatred in comparison to your love for me. He doesn't take half-hearted devotion. He wants the whole thing. Love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And why is he able to say that? Because he's faithful Because he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Because he's faithful to provide ways out of temptation. Because all of his answers to all of the promises are yes in Christ Jesus because of his faithfulness. Because Jesus was faithful. And so the faithful one expects faithfulness from us. And the question becomes for us, we start to realize, well, we really stink. Because we don't do this very well. What do we do? And and the temptation might be that I just need to be more committed I'm going to try harder, like more self-denial. Give me a formula, I'll go work the formula. And you know what? That's not what you see in the scriptures. What the scripture actually teaches us is that those who are actually faithful are the ones who live by faith. You see, without faith, it's impossible to please God. What some of us would like to do is then clean up our act, stop doing that sin so much, stop believing that lie so much, stop and change some behavioral thing. But the scriptures actually say that it's faith that pleases God. And it's without faith that it's impossible to please God. And you know what a faithful person looks like? Someone who lives by faith. Supernatural faithfulness requires faith, a life of faith. Not just a decision of faith. Our relationship with Jesus starts with a decision, but it's a life that's lived out. It's a life of faith. Supernatural faithfulness requires a life of faith. That's what Paul tells the Galatians when they're starting to waver off course. In Galatians chapter 3, in verses 1 through 5, he starts telling them, who's fooled you into thinking you live this life on your own? You live it by faith. He says, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you, confused you, tricked you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit because of your obedience or because of faith? And then he says in verse 3, Are you so foolish? Do you think you start the Christian life one way and then you live it another? You're trying to attain your goal by your obedience, by what you can do because you deny yourself more, because you try harder, because you're more faithful to these three principles or whatever the deal is. Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you His spirit and work miracles among you because you're a good person or because you have faith? It's by faith. In fact, the word for faithfulness in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, it's the same word that's translated faith. The context determines the way that it's translated. The King James actually translate it, translates it, that you would experience the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith. Here in our passage it says faithfulness. Context has determined that. They're, they're so woven together that they flow together. And you think about Jesus and what he tried to develop in his disciples. When he called his disciples to himself, he didn't start telling them to try harder, that they weren't good enough, that they needed to start working harder like an Olympic athlete. Instead, what he does is he develops faith in them. And these are guys that their faithfulness will determine whether the gospel reaches us thousands of years later. And so you look at what Jesus does with them. He calls Nathanael to himself. And what does he do? He starts to make Nathanael realize that there's something different about Jesus. And Nathaniel says, How did you know who I was? He said, Well, I saw you under the fig tree. <laughs> he could have said, Well, I knew you in your mother's womb. I saw when you stole that candy in first grade, you know, whatever thing. He could have really messed with the dude. But he's starting to develop his faith. He's starting to make him realize, I'm different. You can trust me. You see it when you start to read some of the miracles and you look really closely, like the guy who is lowered before Jesus, who's not able to walk. And Jesus tells him that he can walk, right? But before that happens, what does he say? He says, Because of your faith, your sins are forgiven. But so that you'll know that I have the authority to forgive sins, take up your mat and walk. Is he lacking compassion? No, he's still compassionate. He still cares about this guy's needs. He's developing the faith in his followers, in his disciples. He casts out demons. He's got power over demons. He calms seas. He's got power over disaster. He's got power over disease. He's got power over hunger. He opens blind eyes. He does all that stuff. But what's he doing with his disciples as he feeds 5,000 people? He's developing their faith. And their faithfulness is going to be what's key. Faithful people are people with big faith. And so how do you get big faith? Big faith comes not because you exercise your faith muscle. Maybe you've heard that type of stuff before. That's hokey. That's not true. Big faith comes because you have a big God. It's based on your belief in the one who makes the promise. Just think about how trust works. If you and I were to be talking out in the lobby today after the service and I were to make you a promise, and it was a small promise, whether you believed it or not wouldn't be based on what the promise was. It's whether you trust me. You know, if you tell me that you, you needed a ride to work this week, and I said, I'll give you a ride to work this week. If you think I'm a lazy bum, and I don't even go to my job half the time, you're not going to believe I'm going to take you to yours. But if I, I can make like a huge promise to you, like I told you, I, I'll give my life for you. Like something big. Your belief in what I say will be based on whether or not you think I've got a track record to prove that that's so? Whether or not you can trust me. Not based on the promise. God makes some great promises. The reason why we can believe them isn't because they're these grandiose statements, it's because of who makes the promise. The issue for us in growing our faith is we've got to have a big God. A God that we believe can actually be trusted. A God that we could actually place our faith in. And if you look at people throughout human history, whether it's the disciples, whether it's Paul, you look at a guy like Job, look at Job. A guy whose circumstances, they go south fast. Satan said, the only reason that Job's faithful to you is because you bless him. And God knew their relationship. And God said, well, you, can, you can take away the circumstances. And Job will still be faithful. What happens? And one day he loses his kids, he loses his money, and then his wife says, why don't you curse God and die? And he says, well, God gave that stuff. Naked I came into the earth. Naked I'm going to leave. Didn't change anything about the one that I trust. I love the passage where he says in Job chapter 19, it's gotten real bad by this point. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, he'll stand upon the earth. I know who he is. It's not about what's happening in my life. It's about who he is. And so I'm faithful because of my faith. Not because of my circumstances, not because I've disciplined myself to do it, not because I try really hard, but because of my faith, because of my trust. Supernatural faithfulness comes from faith. And you look at these people that were so faithful, it's because of their faith in God. I was reading this week uh, a guy, Adoniram Judson. I don't know if you've heard of him or not. If you grew up in church, maybe you've heard of him. If not, probably haven't. Um, his story is that he grew up in a Christian home, but he wasn't a Christian. His dad was actually a pastor. And he was very intellectual and was not bought into the faith. When he went away to college, he actually bumped into a guy who was probably the smartest person he had ever met, a guy named Jacob Imes. And as he met this guy, the guy convinced him Christianity couldn't possibly be true. And so he lived a humanistic life, a life where you just try to get pleasure and excitement. And the author of his, his story says that he was on a trip A a wanderlust trip was the way the author said it. It It's kind of an older writer. What he's talking about is that he was going out and he was just traveling, looking for exciting experiences. And so someone that would go, and whether it was women or whether it was an adventure and a drilling thing or whether it was getting drunk, whatever the deal was, that was what he was doing because you just pleased yourself. And one night he stayed in this inn. It was in uh, the Boston area, and as he was there sleeping in his room, the guy next to him woke him up because he kept moaning and groaning at night. And he he was thinking to himself, this guy sounds terrible. And he couldn't go back to sleep. He kept hearing this person moaning and groaning. And eventually he thought, that guy must be dying in that room. It's terrible. And he started to think to himself, I wonder if that guy's ready to die. I wonder where he's going to spend eternity. I wonder what's going to happen to him. He couldn't sleep through that night. The next morning he went down to the front desk and asked the innkeeper, what happened to the guy in the room next to me? He said, well, he died last night. He said, who was it? he said, it was Jacob Imes. They didn't know they were in the same place. He knew his friend was not ready for eternity. He knew that he died lost. And that drove Adoniram to place his faith in Jesus Christ. And he didn't want anybody else passing into eternity like that. And so he gave his life to the missions. He spent 40 years serving God in the mission field in Burma. And he went there for the first 10 years of his ministry. He led 18 people to Jesus. And I, I read that, and I thought to myself, and that's great that 18 people came to Jesus. We could have 18 people come to Jesus this morning at Southbridge. 18 people in 10 years? That's hard work. And then after that time, what ended up happening is he got arrested, but not for sharing the gospel. There was a war that broke out between the, uh, the Indian government and the English government, and they thought that he was a spy for the English. And they put him in this prison. It was a, they called it the death prison. It was a big wood box. It was 30 by 40 feet wide, and it was about 5 feet tall. And there were all these people in there, just terrible. If I told you the circumstances, it would make you sick. The stuff that was in there, they never cleaned it out, the 21 months that he was in there. And he's in there for being a traitor. And he's being faithful. He's being faithful to the gospel. What are the questions you think would come to your mind if you were him? And the whole time that he's in there, they, they, they only let him out once. let him out one time because his wife and their daughter were about to die And they let him go out with shackles on his ankles, walking through the streets to try and take his little daughter to some other Burmese woman that could nurse the child, to keep the child alive. They put him back in there. At nighttime, they'd put a bamboo stick between his ankles and lift him up to the ceiling so he couldn't get out, and he'd sleep on his shoulders with his feet up above his head for 21 months because of his faithfulness. And then after he gets out, he goes and he finds his wife and his daughter, and they're barely alive, but they make it. They come back to health. A short while after that, they die. And he remains faithful. But it's not easy. And I love that he tells the truth about his story. He gets so depressed at one point, he digs a grave next to his house and he stares into it for days. And he questions God's love. He questions his own calling. But eventually he says, that God, your love never fails. And he remains faithful. And in his time there, in those 40 years, he ends up baptizing 7,000 people in Burma. Today, there are about 600,000 believers there They go back to his ministry. Over 3,500 churches. Because he was faithful. Why was he faithful? It was because of his faith. And so I ask you the question, do you live a life of faith? Not have you made a decision of faith one time, but do you live a life of faith? What are you trusting God for in areas of obedience? Believing his promises. What areas has he been speaking to you and you haven't been listening to take a step of faith? And maybe it's because you're more devoted to yourself than you are to him. Or maybe it's because you've been believing lies. Or maybe it's because you're trapped in sin and you don't think you could ever get out. That's not true. Because he's faithful. Because of his faithfulness, we can be faithful by placing our faith in him. And trusting him, not just as Savior, but with all of the decisions of our life. With our kids, with our finances, with our time, with our resources and the the truth that we've been entrusted with. Has there ever been a generation that's had more access to the gospel than us? Are we faithful with those things? Will you live a life of faith? Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And we ask you to give us faith. We believe. Help us with our unbelief. We need you. And God, we hate disloyalty. We even hate our own disloyalty to you. But will you show us how attractive you are, how glorious you are, how majestic you are, and draw us to you? Help us to trust you more. Father, I pray for those who need to place their faith in your son Jesus Christ as their Savior today. I pray that right now that you would even convict their hearts and draw them to you and help them realize they don't have a relationship with you. And if you need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, it's really simple but very difficult. It's simple in the sense that you have to admit that you're a sinner and believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins. It's complex in the sense that you're basing your entire eternal destiny on what Jesus Christ, someone you've never seen before, did on a cross for you 2,000 years ago. It's the most important decision you'll ever make. But apart from knowing Jesus, You can never know the Father. You can be a good person. You can be moral. You can be friendly. None of that stuff will get you to the Father. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for through me. And if today you want to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, You just acknowledge your sin before him. Just pray to him in your heart and call upon him and say, God, I want your son Jesus Christ to be my Savior. And if you pray that today, I just ask you if you're on your connection card, if you'd mark that as a decision. And Father, I pray for those of us who need to take another step of faith whatever that is, in whatever area of our lives, whether it's with our marriage, whether it's with our job, whether it's something else you're doing and probing that I could never even guess, God, you do beyond what we could ever ask or imagine according to the power that's at work within us. We believe in you. We believe that you are a big God. Father God, will you please expand our faith? In Jesus' name I pray.